1: Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. This is Spaces Podcast, where we aim to elevate the appreciation and understanding of the spaces we occupy every day. Hello, my name is Demetrius. This is Michelle. Hey, everyone. This is Jason. What's up, guys? And you are listening to Spaces Podcast. Thank you for coming back. Season three is officially underway. Feels like it's been a long time. It has. It has. It has been a very long time. So, today we're going to get started talking about construction and the evolution of construction. Jason, you probably are most familiar with kind of what's going on in the field. How have you been dealing with the evolution of construction? Anything of late that kind of has popped up?
0: Yeah, actually, we're, um, we're expanding some of our operations. Uh, our cabinet company is now actually shipping to Northern California and doing installs in Northern California, which is new in the last six months. Mm. Um, and one of the one of the builders that we started working with is actually doing full panelized construction, mm. so shipping full panels, doing all that kind of stuff. And um, it's actually super cool. It was the first time I can tell you that when I walked to go do a field measure and verify things for you know cabinets and stuff, literally everything was exactly as the blueprint said. Yeah. The only thing that changed is a little bit of variability when you go into like, you know, simple small walls that are being added that are not part of the structure, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, those were a little bit out, which is interesting, which is an interesting example of, okay, you've got machine built and then you've got, you know, humans doing measuring and stuff like that. But it was really cool to see. And the funny part was the framework date on that community got moved up by two weeks hmm. because they were ahead of schedule hmm. um, because it's actually the first time they were, it's a big, big. Big national builder too. It was the first time they were doing the panelized construction.
3: Yeah.
0: And they were like, Yeah, it went up way faster than we thought. Wow. So it's what really kind of product neat. was that? What's that? What kind of product? Big single family. Single it's gonna family sell for roughly detached? two million in San Bruno. Oh, yeah, wow detached. Interesting. So it's really neat to see because I was like, I remember getting the call and they're like, Hey, we're gonna meet this Wednesday, and it's like Monday. Can you can you come up? I'm like, Oh crap, right? I'm like, <laughs> What? Like, they're like, We're two weeks ahead of schedule. Oh I'm like, God. which is fantastic. Yeah. And I was like, Yeah, so it was really, <clears throat> it was really very neat to go see it. And as we were walking the product and going through the framework, we're seeing things where the human air part started messing up stuff. Not bad, not bad. But there was things like this shouldn't be that way. This shouldn't be that way because it wasn't critically drilled or whatever from the factory. So mm. people started having to put their own holes in certain things that you would think would be fine to do on site. But you literally start seeing the dichotomy of the two. Yeah. So it was super cool. And I'm really interested to get going through it. And I'm really interested to see how static those measurements stay. Yeah. As we go through the project mm. space. Yeah. So that's really cool. And then there's another project that we're on right now, which um I think grand opens this weekend. And I would suggest anybody go check it out. True Homes Holmes is building it in Brea. It's got variability in, it's a townhome construction, variability in floor style built in. So like the main floor, the kitchen can be in three different places. Hmm. The secondary floor has four different variations. The the say second. The third floor has four different variations, and the bottom floor I think only has two. Mm. But you can literally put the kitchen at the front, the middle, or the back, and mm. then that de- tem- you know could determine if it's a bedroom, yeah. a, a great room, whatever. And it's literally built that way, so you can
1: select it even after the building's already put
0: together. It's really kind of a neat concept. Somebody
1: else had that system that they tried to create, and they like trademarked the the system name. I can't remember who it was. I not but
0: out here. Yeah. Um, I can't remember. I mean, remember. it sounds... No, it wouldn't if, be like an oh, old I'll something. mention it. Well,
3: it, so it, is that... Okay. That's modular as well? The TrueMark Project yeah. in Brea?
0: Yeah. So, so, all the... So, again, they're working with the same company that the other one's working with in San what Bruno. What is the company? Um, the other one's the Horton.
3: No, no, the... Uh, the uh,
0: Integra? Integra? Integra. Okay. Integra. Yeah. Integra. We've I talked about that. them before. We have, yeah. Well, what's I've interesting
3: is everyone's been talking about the modular building for what three years now yeah. and you know i think a lot of the home builders uh, have been reluctant. reticent and reluctant and reluctant. just not really sure how it fits within the business model of production it, home building and, and, it, and it, so now to
1: see it, it getting happening down their throat well yeah I, I don't think
0: they have a choice <laughs> yeah. and, they're, and they're basically getting to the point where they're gonna have to start looking what i'm really excited to do i was in a i don't know if you were there but that we had a um, a next gen event meeting coffee talk or something with tim myers from or not no no Tim something from Myers, Tim Research, Sullivan, that, that mm-hmm. guy. And uh, yes, that guy, <laughs> that guy. And, um, and we were talking super smart, about, guy. super smart guy, great, great deal. And he was talking about leader to leader that they were doing at uh, PCBC maybe, or something like that. And talking about how they get together with all these, you know, CEOs and whatnot, and talking about the change coming and whatever. And so when he asked us, I, I said, do you think they're really willing to implement change when they're 62, 63, 65 years old? Mm-hmm. Ultimately they're waiting for the last run up, and they're going to say, I'm out. Do they really want to do that? And he kind of was like, okay, off mic? No, I don't think they're going to be the ones to do that because why change it now? So I think what's going to happen is if we get a little bit of that changing in the guard, I think you have people that are a little bit more willing to step out and say, okay, this is how we're going to do it. The gal in purchasing for Dr. Horton that's up Uh, doing this one in san bruno Mm -hmm. she's younger and was like this is what we're gonna try and so now all of a sudden it's got notoriety like literally their corporate office calling saying what are you guys doing you're two weeks ahead of schedule yeah you know that kind of thing so i think it takes you know our generation this age app to go ahead and press in there and start forcing some of that change
1: yeah definitely michelle did you have some input as far as what you're seeing on the development side
3: not anything that's earth shatteringly different than what we've Kind of talked about over the last year some of the themes of labor shortages and poaching of labor yeah. to other jobs, yeah, we're still seeing quite a bit of that in Northern California, so maybe De Horton is on to something yeah. you know with their project, yeah, I think there's still a fair amount in fact i I would argue that the majority of builders are still not grabbing on quite yet to the modular, and I'm not saying they won't, mm-hmm. but I think you know there's there's a tendency to do what's always worked. And
0: it's safe. it's safe. It's safe but
3: it's it's uh, it's predictable yep. And I think there's an argument of you know not necessarily quality but just optionality that you get. When you're not doing modular, not doing production, easier Mm -hmm. to
1: handle variabilities. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So this next year or two are going to be very critical because they're either going to have to jump on board very quickly or just get bulldozed if if it works out. Because there's a lot of companies starting to pop up, but if it if it actually clicks over and they start to see huge returns and way shorter construction times, um, if you're not at least Looking into it, you're going to be way behind the eight ball. Uh, well, I think
3: who's going to grab onto it even faster than the home builders will be the apartment builders. Mm, uh, the yeah. product that they're building is a little more boxy. repetitive yeah. and boxy. Yeah. And so you can can quite literally stack unit after unit after unit after unit. There's You're not having to create variables yeah. in order to justify premiums or things of that nature that you would in a single family environment well yeah
0: i think yeah. i think the most important part is one way or another regardless if it takes the panelized construction or not at least people are starting to change yeah <laughs> i mean that's the biggest thing is like okay let's open the door and let's see what else is available and hell let's give it a shot yeah you know what i mean like where i would say three four five years ago like that's not even an option right yeah. like it's like we're not doing that we don't do that even though you're like you're doing it with trusses you know what i mean like what's the difference but it's nice that you're finally starting to see and i really believe it's the it's the infusion of some of our thought is the next generation that's coming through and saying yo, this could work you mm-hmm. know what I mean like give me a shot and then all of a sudden you see people going hey this works what are you doing Yeah. the same thing i've been telling you about for 3 or 4 years yeah. you know what i mean like that kind of thing and i think that's what it's going to take because if you look at innovation innovation is not usually bred out of the same people doing the same thing Yeah. it's somebody coming in and challenging that market you know yeah. what i'm saying and then all of a sudden everybody grabs onto that because yeah. this is a new frontier it's shiny it's cool it's new everybody wants it and then everybody's like okay yeah we all better
1: do that too yeah. you know what i'm saying so we're going to get into a deeper conversation on that later. We actually have a guest coming on uh, later on in the season. We're going to get into the modular and some mm. of the off-grid and all that stuff. So we'll dig into that deeper later you on. You off-grid like, like the show's off-grid? Off-grid homes. Right on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, today we're going to talk uh, a little more generally about construction. Uh, we'll probably touch back on this again uh, a little bit more. But today we brought in a guest, and our guest has spent her career in building science forensics, discovering why buildings fail, and working with owners, builders, and architects to remedy the problems that occur. Her new construction consulting business helps architects use building science not only to mitigate risk of failure, but also to help them make their projects as energy efficient as they are beautiful. She is the founder of the Instagram account at building science fight club an educational project an educational project that teaches architects about building science and construction she graduated from princeton university and studied at boston architectural college before completing her master of architecture degree at new school of architecture and design please welcome christine williamson Christine thank you for joining us
2: hey thanks uh, thanks for having me also is this um I heard you saying it earlier is this the kickoff to season three
1: yes season you three lead off hitter <laughs> lead off <I heard laughs> hitter
2: so
1: <loud>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh, so you're getting us kicked off so thank you for joining us
2: well thanks for having me it's um it's fun you guys talk about really neat stuff I really was enjoying the discussion earlier on uh, on modular construction and what i loved about um just the setup of your entire conversation is that you weren't presuming like a lot of people do when they approach that particular topic that it's um that it's completely black or white right. in that either everything is modular or nothing is modular and what's kind of neat is seeing innovation in this part of our of our business of our industry where it's there are different solutions to meet very specific needs michelle talking about apartment buildings yeah. and um, hotels, for example, have really what? different needs than high-end custom home building solutions and, and production homes, totally different.
1: Yeah. So Christine, uh, aside from your bio, is there anything that you missed out on or any additional insight you want to give us, hobbies you have or anything like that?
2: I mean, there's. is there anything that's not covered in that? Yeah, there's lots that's not in that. <laughs> but it's, but no, that, uh, that's a pretty accurate just description of, of what I do. I figure out why stuff isn't working the way we want it to work. Um, I help people handle risk and construction at the outset and figure out, okay, how do we avoid these types of problems? And how do we, there are a lot of different ways you can install a window, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, at a certain point, there's a, there's a point of diminishing return for people for, well, how we, if you install 20,000 windows a year, are you going to alter the installation of, you know, 19,999 <laughs> to, um, to improve the one that leaks, or is it, is it cheap just to cheaper, just to fix the ones that leak? So how do you kind of find your sweet spot for, for risk? So that's on the, on the new construction. And then the third thing I do is teach, I yeah. teach people how to, how to figure this stuff out, help, help them make better decisions about their own, their own projects. Cause everybody's got different risk tolerance and different performance goals. And, sometimes we struggle with that too. We think of building as, well, there's only one right way to do something. And I want to do things the right way. I don't want to do things the wrong way. Well, it's not, it's kind of a, an overly simplistic way of, of viewing our, really actually lots of industries, but in particular ours, um, where there's so many different ways of doing things. It depends on what you're trying to achieve.
1: Yeah. We can start with that part of of, of you teaching But before we do, I want to give a little bit of a background on how construction has evolved thus far. And to do that, you got to go back in time. Excavations at a number of sites in Europe show circular rings of stones that are believed to have formed parts of shelters from sometime before 12,000 BCE. Construction is a process as old as humans. As a function to mitigate the effects of our climate, early primitive humans used natural resources that were available around them to build mud huts and stone monoliths for shelter. Early tools of the trade were animal bones, copper plates, and axes. Following the agricultural revolution in 10,000 BCE, nomadic lifestyles came to an end as permanent structures were constructed. Historians believe that what we now know as traditional construction began to take shape in ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia. The Egyptian pyramids are some of the first examples of large-scale permanent structures. Evidence of composite construction, known as wattle and daub, displayed the use of woven lattice wood strips, wattle, and a sticky material, daub, which was made of wet soil, clay, sand, animal dung, and straw. Heavy timber buildings began to appear in the Neolithic period, but were restricted in member size due to limited capabilities of stone tools. As populations grew and tools advanced, construction became a cornerstone of civilization. The advancement in tools and methods brought about achievements around the world. Etruscans, who lived in the northern part of Italy, influence roman construction with their stone construction based on the arch romans went on to develop spectacular arch bridges aqueducts temples and other public buildings utilizing this method and later advanced into early concrete timber metal construction brick making and brick masonry construction in china there were remarkable achievements in masonry logistics and land surveying methods which were exemplified in the construction of the Great Wall. By the 18th century, behind the first industrial revolution, the introduction of cast iron and clay tile stoves brought about an efficiency in plumbing and interior heating in Western Europe. And the puddling process for making wrought iron, and rolling mills powered by steam engines produced wrought iron bars, angles, and other shapes. These advancements led to a series of dramatic iron and glass buildings for conservatories and exhibition halls like the Crystal Palace built in London's Hyde Park to house the Great Exhibition of 1851. A significant achievement of the period was the emergence of building science. A collection of scientific knowledge that focused on the analysis of the physical phenomenon affecting buildings mathematical models were used to predict structural performance such as the elastic theory first presented by swiss mathematician leonhard euler in his theory of column buckling in 1757. this theory was further developed and defined as the modulus of elasticity by english scientist thomas young in 1807. yet Building science wouldn't truly emerge until the end of the 19th century as mass adoption of plumbing, electrical, and mechanical systems was underway. This was the second Industrial Revolution, which made way for more advancement as inventors improved the use of electric power and the manufacturing process. Brick and timber production was industrialized. America began to mass-produce steel. Concrete re-emerged with this new composite relationship with steel and mechanical conditioning improved comfort for occupants. These construction technologies ushered in various project types, large bridges, railroads, and skyscrapers, and the great skyscraper race rose to position the construction industry at the forefront of the economy. This attention and growing demand required and attracted a large workforce, and the need was satisfied from all over the world. Look for episode two of this series to hear more about the evolution of construction. So I know you do actual consulting where you're hired to go and basically teach a course, but I think it might have been your first form of teaching was the Building Science Fight Club, right? Where you're kind of breaking it
2: down. I would occasionally get paid to teach in person. So somebody right now... Among architects, the education, the way we get continuing education is largely through materials manufacturers. They essentially subsidize a lot of continuing education. So they have an interest in providing, <laughs> in getting in front of the <laughs> audience that they want to sell to.
0: And yeah, they do
2: things like hire uh, people like me <clears throat> to to teach on topics that are of interest or that they believe are of interest to, to architects. And so I did that a little bit but it was really hard to do that for a few reasons one is that i was a full-time consultant and you know i was working full-time so i'd have to get paid as much to teach as i would to consult to really make it worth my time yeah uh, so it was hard to hard to really get into that but it'd be hard to command to actually ask people for as much money as i was getting for consulting as i was for teaching because i wasn't like i didn't know how to teach like <laughs> <a skill laughs> like any others right <laughs> like
1: yeah.
2: You know, I, I don't have practice in front of a crowd. I get nervous like anybody else. Oh, and man.
0: Leap before you look. It's all good. Just go for it, right? Yeah, right? Yeah.
2: Well, if I'm going to ask for money to do this, I ought to may, maybe, kind of practice. <laughs> yeah, uh, what's your credential? Right? It's all about
3: practice. Come
2: on. Uh, but I mean, there's a skill in teaching, too. We've all had the experience uh, in school of having really phenomenally yeah. wonderful, wonderful professors who are good at their subject matter, yeah. but who do not know how to communicate that to people yeah, who aren't sure. at or near their own level. So Anyway, I, I think I'm a, pr- a pretty good teacher anyway, but, but I was on Instagram I, when I, when I started, it was really to teach friends. It was sort of the added benefit of I get to kind of test drive material or practice mm. a little bit. And I'd rather get a question from a few people online when I'm in my pajamas, still <laughs> sitting in the kitchen than in front of 200 people and where I've been paid to be there. I'm, uh, I don't know what the answer to that is. Yeah. Um, of course, now it's the opposite. I'd rather get a question from only 200 people than, um, than if I put something online now, it's, uh, the stakes are a little bit higher. So I, I definitely read and reread and reread what I'm, what I'm putting out there and make sure I get it technically accurate at least.
1: Uh, I just wanted to further explain what Christine is doing with the Building Science Fight Club. So if you do go to her Instagram, she breaks down details and she sketches out details, construction details of how things go together. And she does comparisons of why to do this or not do that. And kind of goes through all these different conditions. So check her out, Building Science Fight Club. So who is you-
3: your audience when you're teaching?
2: So on Instagram, it's completely non-commercial. So I don't there's no money for this what i think of a classmate of mine in particular i'll give her a little shout out her name is jamie she's awesome (laughs) and um, she and her wife are both architects they were classmates of mine at boston architectural college and they would always ask me questions about building science and both of them are really smart and they're good at what they do they until recently they've started their own firm but until recently they worked at pretty fancy firms in boston and they still had these pretty technical questions but somewhat in some ways kind of basic questions about construction and building science and they're asking these questions really made me think well wow if people as bright as the two of them and as successful in in the traditional architectural career path can still have these questions there must be a really big need for acquiring these this type of knowledge about actual construction and how do you learn about building materials and how they perform in service. And architects don't have a great way of acquiring that skill set in a traditional, Hmm. especially bigger firms, um, which are increasingly specialized. So I view, you know, Jamie in particular, and Ashley as my, as my audience. So smart people good at what they do, but who haven't had the opportunity to spend as much time on a job site and don't like getting, especially later in their career, don't enjoy the experience of being caught flat footed on a yeah. on a job site and yeah. getting a question that from a contractor. Contractors can be pretty aggressive sometimes too. It's different uh,
0: mentality.
1: And, yeah. And, yeah, there's, yeah there's knowing
2: a- when to push back and when to really <clears throat> and when to listen and so that's who I think of as my um, as my audience.
1: And there's been a bit of a stigma, I think, that that you're also sort of breaking down is that architects while we are go through training that to, that touches a lot of things it 's hard to know all the intimate details of every little thing and how every single material comes together because we 're still going over theory and programs and three d and all these other things so there's there's this stigma and this embarrassment I think that architects have in this difficult time. Saying I, I'm not quite sure how that goes together and then trying to figure out how to put it together without being able to get to the field all the time. Cause you don't get to the field until you're sort of at that senior level. And it well, Help sort of explain takes...
0: to me. I've never understood this, right? So help explain to me where the lines between being a designer, which is an architect, right? Mm-hmm. And an engineer start, stop, cross, whatever. Because the way as I understand it from a construction more of a field mentality right from from what i see out in the field is you have somebody that designs the home and puts it together and i'll and i'm not taking a shot does it in theory
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and then the field and the engineers if you will come and say you can or can't do that and then the field gets out there and is like this isn't going to work so are we saying so that's my mentality so i would never look at an architect and be like well you should have known this Mm -hmm. is there a is there a feeling like the architect should know that Or or is that the architect in place, like imposing that on themselves? I I
1: think a little bit of both. And Christine, you can probably answer that too. I think there's a little bit of both in my opinion. Maybe more so on the architect's side of I should know all of this because I'm an architect. And and I think you think back to the day when the architect was the master builder in air quotes. Okay. And they were the one that controlled everything. and you feel like that's what you're supposed to be now. Got it. But I think there's a difference between then and now as the amount of stuff that we have to do and the responsibilities. If you look at, like, I think uh, several
0: episodes ago, maybe it was last season or whatever, I was using the example of what a a finished carpenter used to be before. Like a finished carpenter used to be able to build anything. They could frame a house. They could put a foundation in. They could do the pretty stuff or whatever. Now it's like the guy installs base and case. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And I'm not trying to oversimplify what they're doing, but it's like, the way that I feel is the architect comes up with the plan. Right, You have to have a general understanding of how it all works. I yeah. get that. But then ultimately, I think it slides over to somebody else who now specializes in that type of thing. So like when you're on a frame walk and we walk into a building and they don't like how something looks, it's like, I don't like this. And then it turns to the engineer and says, okay, now can I move this wall? Can I not? Not asking you if you can move that wall or not. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So I would tend to think a lot of that could be displaced from there. So you guys wouldn't have to feel that guilt of it.
1: Yeah. And I think architects also want it. Okay. So have another part of it. Yeah, th- yeah, there's yeah. a lot of internal yeah. pressure. Okay, got it. Christine, um, what do you.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to draw these to draw these lines. And I don't think that there's that there's ever going to be a hard and fast uh, place to draw them. And especially as our as every profession, but particularly this one becomes more and more specialized because our what our buildings do for us now is really different from what they used to do for us when we were still in the era of master builders. Uh, we perform open heart surgery in some types of spaces. You had a podcast recently on mental uh, mental health facilities. Like those are, those are we 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 uh, customize and uh, our buildings in ways that we um, that we never used to do before. So it's you're you're going to have this kind of specialization, and that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. It's it's good that we can so specifically tailor so many of our designs to specific uses and needs. But that being said, I think it it really, really helps architects do the job of designing a lot better when they can when they have an understanding of how things get built and especially of how these buildings need to be cared for and maintained. So they're the ones advising the owner on stuff like durability and even cost and saying, okay, so What kind of performance can you expect from this type of, from from this type of construction? Like, what do I pick as my sheathing material? What do I pick as my insulation? Where do I locate my insulation in the wall? How does that influence energy efficiency? Uh, How does that influence water management and risk of failure? And you're advising people on sometimes, in the case of residential stuff, on often their single most expensive or valuable asset the thing that houses the people that they love the most in the world and understanding the literal nuts and bolts of this stuff can help help you advise an owner a lot better and helping them make make these types of decisions like is this an investment property for you or is this the house that you are retiring in you approach that really differently from um even from like a water management perspective if something is professionally managed, you can make really different decisions than if something is um, is managed by just a just a homeowner. Like mm-hmm. it's for instance, coatings that need to be maintained, like debt coatings or something. On an apartment building, to maintain a debt coating on on a concrete balcony or a bunch of concrete balconies isn't really that big a deal, right? You've got a profession it's, the building's always gonna be professionally managed. Right. Hopefully. But yeah. <laughs> uh, exactly. But maintaining suppose you've got a, a house Especially sort of a mid mid range house, and you've got a waterproofing coating on a balcony that needs to be maintained. Now that's a real issue. In ten years, is the homeowner even going to be the same homeowner, and are they going to remember that they have to recode their balcony? In that sense, failure isn't always obvious, right? You see small cracks in a in a coating. Yeah. You don't know that you're rotting framing underneath right. or what have you. It, there's a lot of different. um different decisions like that, that architects can be much better positioned to help owners make better decisions if they understand the the process at play. And, and if they understand how hard it is, you know, the description earlier of, can I move this wall or, or can I not move this wall? Having a basic understanding of what you're asking for, that used to really bug me when I was early in my career, when I would have to ask for certain things, it used to bug me that I didn't know am I asking for something really, really hard or am I asking for something really easy? Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, Is this going to take somebody? I remember the first, the first like real experience I had, I was on a job site in the Bronx and I got mugged on the way to this job site.
1: (laughs) Oh my God.
2: I mean, it wasn't, it was this weird New York story. I was on the subway and the, Anyway, and I was like, stop that man. And these two dudes ran him down and they got him. Anyway, um, so I had to awesome. file a police report. They caught him and I, I got my stuff back. But anyway, so I filed a police report and then I went to the job site. And my job. <laughs> had ass, a, dude. I was crazy. There's was, the fight uh, club it, part
0: of building science. Yeah. Right. There.
2: <laughs> right? So, um, so I'm there and I've got this three foot level that I've carried from our office in the East Village on the subway. And I was supposed to, my task as an intern, my, pa- my task was to measure the pitch of the pipes that were in the slab. Uh-huh. And there were a bunch of concrete trucks that were showing up at 6 a.m. The next morning, this was for a big multifamily project. And I had no idea, first of all, that it is not typical for architects to go on job sites and measure stuff like whether there was appropriate pitch in the pipes. <laughs> but, um, but I didn't know. I was just doing what I was told. And the pipes were flat. And so the plumber, I say to the plumber, the pipes are flat, which also, another breach in etiquette. Like you're, I the plumber does not work for me. Yeah, yeah. So the pipes are flat, and the plumber's like, I've been doing this for thirty-five yep. years, and uh, <laughs> no architect has ever come. Of course, I'm not an architect. I'm still a student. Even no architect <laughs> has ever come to a job site and told me what to do, how to do my job, and I didn't know what to do. But because I had been mugged, that one of the principals at at my office was worried about me and came and he was a great guy. He's a mechanical systems designer and boiler mechanic, fantastic New Yorker, a man of few words, very intimidating. He comes up and talks to the plumber and says, you know, what's the problem? The plumber repeats the problem. Like you just don't understand how job sites in New York city are super tight. And this is just unrealistic. And you know, the typical criticism that gets lobbied at architects all the time. Right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you don't know how things work in the real world. Right. You can sit in your office and draw pretty pictures that right. you don't know. <laughs> right. you know. And I'm listening to this, and he sounds kind of reasonable, right? Well, he has been doing this for 30 years, and things are different in the field. And Maybe you know, that
0: is right? how it is. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, maybe. Yep.
2: And uh, the principal, Henry Henry Gifford, he says – he doesn't say anything. So there's this, like uncomfortable, painful silence, and he says, well um, – you know, what does it say on the drawings? How much are the pipes supposed to slope to drain? Quarter inch a foot.
1: Yep. Yeah.
2: Yep. Second question, yes, yeah, says, how much do they slope now? Well, they're flat. And and then there's okay. just and he says nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and I say nothing. And the plumber says nothing. And we're just sitting there for a little uh, standing on that. Like we're standing on the rebar. That's I always find that fun to walk on rebar when it's still the cage. Anyway. <laughs> um, so he says nothing. He turns around. It takes him, I don't know, another hour or two. He adjusts the pipes, they slope to drain, and we're done. But based on how much he fought it before, I thought I was asking him to, like,
0: move heaven and earth. Like, (laughs) anyway,
2: it's, I've obviously I've learned a lot since then, but I hated being in a situation where I didn't understand, I, I didn't have a sense of whether what I was asking was reasonable, unreasonable. What part of it might be reasonable what part of it might not be you know so it was a little bit it would have been nice for me to know that it was a bit of a breach in etiquette certainly for <laughs> an intern to show up and start talking <laughs> to a subcontractor on a job site i would have preferred to have known that walking in yeah. but i also would have preferred to have known that i was not asking him to do anything very complicated yeah. and the entire thing was going to be encased in concrete the next morning and if you're going to solve this problem, yeah. you now's solve the time now. to do it. Yeah, yeah.
0: for sure. That's anyway, a, so that's, that, that's the
2: type of stuff I I try to help people with, help architects and people and designers with is understanding when do, when they really ought to back off and listen and, and when it's, no, you've got to check this now. It's never <laughs> going to be easier than it is now to fix this issue. So let's have the conversation now.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Christine, so are you seeing sort of this Change in perception about construction and appreciation for the technical and, and solution-based arena of building science?
2: Yes and no, in that yes, but in a way that's actually I think not helpful. <laughs> okay. I think science in general enjoys it has a great reputation as a brand. You know, yeah. science. Yeah. You know, it's infallible. It's It's uh, and it's neutral, right? It's it's totally value neutral. It's just science is science, and in a way, I I like that people are more interested in the in the mechanics of how these things work. But understanding building science isn't meant to be this cudgel to make people submit to your your will. It's a tool, and it's a tool like like any other tool. And it's this particular tool helps us understand how to balance performance and risk and durability and how to integrate those concepts into into a design going back to like vitruvius firmness commodity delight and sometimes those those things those values are in harmony with each other sometimes something very durable is also very beautiful like a lot of our water management details on old school buildings are they're, they're beautiful, but they also serve as drips and curfs and protect vulnerable spots like windows or whatever's under underneath an overhang. So they're beautiful, and they also increase durability. But sometimes these things are in opposition with each other as well, where something that makes, you know, you might not, overhangs are a great example. They greatly Greatly, greatly increase durability and the longevity of a particular facade, say, or they can increase the life of your cladding, your window, your whatever is being covered by it. But it's not always what we want to achieve in in certain places. So, yeah. building science can't make that decision for you. It can't say when do I borrow from one of these values to build up another, and when do I when do I not do that? It, it, it can't tell you that. It can just help you understand the trade-offs so that you are happier with the end result, hopefully happier with the end result. But um, yeah, people really, especially now there's people love science. Yeah. They're like, oh, that's so impressive. <laughs> yeah. But when I talk about risk, they're a little less, um, a little less excited about that. Cause nobody likes talking about risk. It's um I think people, in fact, a lot, people get very angry a lot of times when you, when you talk to them about risk in buildings because they view they view this as just your responsibility. What do you mean there's a chance my windows can leak? Yeah. No. The, the <laughs> percentage of acceptable failure is zero. There's there's not you know, there should be no risk of failure. And I think what they do, I mean, this is more of psychology, but I think people repackage for themselves uncertainty as anxiety and anxiety as anger. You know, like my husband, we were talking about this the other day uh, about being at the airport where you repackage anxiety and uncertainty as anger. Exactly. Where it's, you hear oh, the flight, this flight is delayed and we have no idea when it's going to take off. That's yeah. well, really angry, but it's a totally different story of, well, we're swapping out planes. The new one will be here an hour and you'll still make your meeting. Done. Okay. I'll go yeah. have lunch. It's... Yeah. But anyway, people hate this, especially, especially like in this single, single family home owners, especially hate this Discussion of risk. Yeah. People who are on the development side are much more familiar with this, and they they understand managing risk and and want to be able to do that more intelligently and efficiently, and, and often you know save some money there. But homeowners they don't they don't like to think of this. They like to think more of their you know marble countertops.
1: <laughs> yeah. What,
2: what marbling pattern do they favor most?
1: Yeah, yeah. That's true.
3: Are, are you working with mostly um, like larger companies that that are managing? giant projects? Or are you working more with principals who have kind of smaller scale projects, or maybe they're custom single family homes or things of that nature?
2: I do both. I I started mostly in the larger projects. And um, that's just it was that was that was most of the business. And I love that, it, especially if you're if your clients are You know, you can have good, everybody has good clients and ones that are not as fun to work with. But if you've got, you've got good clients that can have those discussions and that know they're good at what they do. So developers that are really good at managing their own stuff, they're organized, makes it really fun to Mm -hmm. do my job where I can give them a concept, like say, okay, you guys are installing 20,000 windows a year. Let's look at what it would, what it would take to improve the installation to reduce your risk and they can sit down because they know their business super well and they can say oh yeah we can totally do this this and this but this other thing that's not going to work not all companies it's even big ones that you think are really sophisticated they don't a lot of times they don't really know what they're doing in the field they're, <laughs> no um,
0: idea yeah generally <laughs> no it. idea yeah
2: um and anyway so i started with that and then i, I would get occasionally really odd stuff from there. So they'd be residential projects, single family, but single family with really weird needs. Like I um, have bought a museum and I want to live in the museum, but the museum is is a historic building and I have a hundred million dollar art collection and I need to create gallery conditions in my personal residence. And I want bulletproof glass on (laughs) historic. This is a real example. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> some
1: Amalgamation of several examples.
2: Um, but I don't know the value of these people's art collection. I, anyway, I don't know. But yeah. So yeah. So I, that, this is actually a real example. How do we put bulletproof um, glass on historic windows? You can't. You're not going to replace the glass on the windows. So you want storm shutters, for example. So you have bulletproof stor- essentially storm windows on the interior. Mm. Now, if you do that, and you're in a cold climate that changes how your, how your yeah. wall performs. And you yeah. have an issue, you may have an issue with condensation. Yeah. So first of all, how do you know if you're going to have an issue with condensation and how do you fix that? Yeah. And um h- how do you go about addressing that? So anyway, weird stuff. Like, I mean, I guess, I guess it makes sense when you lay it out, but um, <laughs> it's certainly unusual stuff like that. And um that stuff is really fun. So when it's been single family homeowners, it's been, so stuff that's kind of unusual like that and it's been more but but usually it's big scaled stuff so any residential work on on homes will be more production type so people who are repeating the same thing over and over so there's real economy if they can ad- address risk it's it's broad right they're they're repeating something a lot of times so it really it really does make a difference the value equation is a little different on on individual homes and a lot of times it's yeah. as a as for me as a professional it's it's a little harder for me to to do that that work and still be worth it for a client right I'm expensive yeah. so what you yeah. don't need the kind of handholding that I'm gonna provide uh, if they're only doing it this one time so Anyway, so to answer your question, it's a little bit of both, but it tends to be stuff that's bigger and more repeated. It's I get in my personal life and on certainly on Instagram, I'll get like, "Hey, I'm renovating my attic. What kind of insulation should I use?" And I try to answer that sometimes to help people, but it's um usually there're too many variables and yeah. I have to do just as much work as I would for the guy who wants bulletproof glass or I have to do 75% of the amount of work to understand their job, but yeah. Um, I don't get paid, so it's, <laughs> there's less time to, to help people.
0: Yeah. I'm going through rental right now. Can we talk about bulletproof
1: glass? No, <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, absolutely.
1: <laughs> uh, Christine, what, so when you're working with your clients, what tends to be sort of the more complex part of the process that you're trying to solve?
2: Um, I think the, I, I'm not sure if this is going to answer your question the way it, you intend to ask it, but, um, the thing that helps me the most or that helps other people the most, architects the most in in teaching about this stuff that helps them solve most amount of problems is understanding the division of labor among the trades. Hmm. That is the, I think the single biggest help. When, when architects can start to understand who's responsible for what piece, what element that they draw in any given detail, it helps them draw much better details so so for example understanding okay so i need i've got this window and i need to draw a window detail what are the trades involved in this and what are the order that they're going to show up on the job site Uh so first the framer is going to be there and so then i've got a a framer then and this changes depending on the region you're in Uh Um, then i've got a waterproofing Uh subcontractor and the waterproofing subcontractor will prepare the rough opening and sometimes that waterproofing subcontractor is also the glazing contractor and they'll right. also install the window. In some places they'll have a different a sheet metal contractor and that person is responsible for the sheet metal on the whole job, whether it's on the roof, whether it's, you know, at a at a door detail, whether it's wherever it is. And understanding who's responsible for what and understanding that the project gets bought out differently. So the contractor takes the drawings and and subs it out to you know, their subcontractors bids it out to so in those subcontractors will bid on individual pieces of it and one of the big um, misses that we have is when is when subcontractors when we miss something something is um unclear in whose scope it falls under hmm. so in a detail you've got a clad enclosure piece or something and we're not really sure well is that in the cladding installer scope or is that in the the glazing contractor scope. Is that in whose scope does it fall under? Which by the and, way, then
0: they're not going to ask the question so they can charge more when it gets down the line in exactly, construction.
2: Yeah. Exactly. And, and so something that is really clear and easy, like sealant joints around windows are such a, such an easy yeah. example of this. Um, sometimes it's unclear to, to the contractor you can argue about whose fault this is because people do argue about whose fault it is every time. time. Yeah. Yep. But um, in the, this a sealant joint, is that a sealant joint that is, is bought and owned in the scope of the painter or the, or the drywall installer, or is that a functional sealant joint that's meant to be part of how the window system operates yeah. and it gets installed by the glazer. And now if you forget that and you have the argument afterwards, that sealant joint goes from being basically no cost, you know, included in the scope to a really expensive sealant joints. Yep. So understanding the division of labor among the trades and drawing your details in a way that makes it as easy as possible and it, for for a contractor to clear have have a clear sense of who's responsible for what ends up being like it takes people's practices from maybe not their practice, but it takes their experience during construction administration from being nightmarish to
0: much easier yeah well not only, not only the cost thing too when you use that that sealant joint as a example you probably would want the waterproofer doing it because he's going to look at it differently and how he packs that Backing. joint and make sure no water's going to get in as opposed to a painter who's going to come in and just make sure it's sealed from the outside so he can get a nice clean line you know what i mean exactly. it's two very different principles and in, in uh, theories of thought that yeah. go around it uh, exactly uh, with the cost factor as well When you do it after and it's not part of a a proposal so
2: and a lot of times architects don't know in that they're using something they've got so many things to pay attention to and so they're just uh, cutting and pasting so this is the window detail we did on the last job yep and they're (laughs) they're not really paying attention to what they've what they've drawn and they're not entirely they're not they haven't thought that through whose scope is this under when do i expect to see this when i do my site visits when should i see this when should i not see it and if the contractor is proposing doing something different is that acceptable to me? Does that change performance a little bit? Does it, what should my condition be if I'm going to agree to this or or is it okay?
1: Do you think there's been a change in the industry that's created that culture or is it something that's just always existed of this lack of understanding maybe um, in some cases of what those different uh, responsibilities are and how, how you change a detail based on that?
2: I don't know. It's hard for me to say because it's. I'm sort of like, does a fish know it's wet? Um, <laughs> I'm in the business, so it's it's hard for me to say. But I certainly think it's very natural. This is not how we're really taught in schools. We're we're actually working sort of the opposite way. I had to I had to learn a totally different way of understanding buildings after school. So in school, you're trying to achieve a desired aesthetic, and then you're kind of working backwards. When I draw a detail, I draw it the way it's built. So I draw like what's gonna go in first what's gonna go in second so even my drawings are sort of um they're a virtual mock-up i'm I'm building it in my mind as i as I draw something and those are it's really hard when you're in the habit of one to switch to the other and architects have to be in that in the habit of well what is the desired effect you don't you don't want them doing it the way the way I'm rec- or doing it only the way I'm recommending so it's really it's a hard skill set to be able to do both of those things at once, but nobody said our jobs were going to be easy. I guess.
1: <laughs> in general, have you seen the the industry sort of evolve over your time of since you've exited school and uh, where you're at now?
2: I think so. It's um, when I was in school, people were really, really interested in green, mm-hmm. and the USGBC was pretty much brand new and we were really excited about lead and that kind of stuff in my professional now so it's hard to know if this is if i can attribute this to just an industry change or the change from being a student to the realities of (laughs) professional practice where so i got my start working on extraordinarily energy efficient buildings in order to design really really energy efficient buildings you need to know a lot about heat transfer, thermodynamics, air barriers, all the, all the techno. you need to know a lot about construction. It matters how the buildings get built, um, not just how they're drawn. And as I got further and in, deeper into practice, most of my clients are interested not in, in stuff like energy efficiency, they're interested in risk hmm. and, I, some of that's natural sort of real world stuff right what do i contend with well i don't want to get sued <laughs> yeah. um how do i make this not suck yeah. as opposed to how do i make this awesome the first step is let's let's stop the bleeding here yeah, and um sure. so i don't know so there's i suppose there's been a little bit of it uh, of a change that way maybe maybe we're getting um newly interested in in energy efficiency and certainly and there's a huge interest in in carbon in particular people don't like they talk. Actually, that's that's a difference. We talked about energy efficiency 20 years ago. Now we're talking about carbon. Uh, um, hmm. Just sort of, I'll stay neutral on whether <laughs> I think that's how that's helpful or not. But um,
1: <laughs> please don't no, sure. <laughs> <will> change.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. totally a change.
1: Yeah. Now looking ahead, are you starting to see trends or anything in society that's making construction sort of change and and what you're telling your clients or what questions they're asking?
2: Uh, yeah, I think we're seeing, I think people are starting to see things unravel a lot in ways that's very upsetting to them. So for example, we're we're coming across a um, a big crisis related to stucco that's just starting. And this is, you're, I don't think you're seeing this as much in California because you have such a wonderful, awesome climate out there. <laughs> where this type of failure happens a lot less, but um, we're insulating our buildings a lot more right now. And we're having to contend with, when you, when you do that, less energy passes across the, the enclosure, across across the, the wall assembly, for example, the roof assembly. And when you have less energy crossing it, which is a good thing, right? That's the, that's the whole point. We Absolutely. want less energy. Right. But it means that we're reducing drying um, substantially. Um. And so when we reduce drying, it means that, the stuff that we used to be able to get away with, like bad flashing details, bad water management, we can't get away with that stuff anymore. And it, it was never a good idea to have stuff that leaked or that, that wasn't flashed properly, but now we're seeing real failures. And we see this particularly with stucco because it's, um, it holds in most shirt. of the world we put stucco on, directly on, on block walls, right? Like mm-hmm. that's what you see in, in all of Europe, got masonry construction and stucco goes over top of it as a, as a render. And in North America we build really lightweight framed buildings and often out of out of moisture sensitive materials. And this is a this is a great thing in a lot of ways in that it is much, much cheaper and faster to, to build things here. And so a lot more, you know, housing is less expensive. There's you know, office space is less expensive. There's all kinds of advantages to, to this lightweight cheaper construction and by lightweight but,
0: sorry um, you're talking stick framing and that type of stuff right
2: exactly right. anything framed it's is like it's literally okay. less heavy and we often do this out of materials that are moisture sensitive particularly wood stuff right, right. so we're using a sheathing now we're using instead of plywood we're using osb oriented strand board right. and osb's tolerance for for moisture is a lot less than some of these old materials even dimensional lumber like from Hundred-year-old trees. That wood that's in my crawl space right now yeah. could get pretty wet before it yeah. started to rot. Right. You build the same thing out of out of new growth wood, and suddenly the building on the same soil on similar in, a, right. in the same climate now now we ha- and now you insulate it. Well, now things start to actually rot, right. and um, we have to make changes accordingly. But to return to stucco, we've got um, stucco on framed buildings with two layers of building paper. Right. And it used to be the building paper we used to use was this thick, heavy asphalt impregnated yep. paper, um, felt paper, like sixty-minute
0: yeah. stuff type of deal, right? It, yep. Exactly,
2: and we call it thirty-pound felt or right. fifteen-pound felt. And it used to actually weigh thirty pounds per hundred square feet. Right. Well, now we use number thirty felt. It's not yeah. thirty pounds. It's more dimensionally stable, so it's actually it's a better product. But it doesn't have the same kind of rag content that it used to. And so back in the day, when we put stucco on this, the felt paper would expand because the stucco is wet, right? Right. And as it cured, it would, it would, um, debond from the back of the stucco as it dried out. So you'd have this little bitty space between stucco and the old school asphalt impregnated building papers. And, um, and that was for drainage. And mm. what we're finding now in about 2000, we changed the codes to respond to this because we knew, okay, these papers aren't, we're not, they're not they are not debonding anymore. Right. So we, we required the building code requires two layers of felt, both, right. you know, felt paper, right, right, right. IP coded paper. So, which is and generally um, that
0: two layers of 60 minute paper you see, right?
2: Exactly. That's yeah. what the two, so the first layer is for water management. The second layer that the one that sticks to the stucco is a bond break and all it's a spacer. It's there to create that, to recreate that little space. But what we're finding now is that when we use, oh, and that was fine with plywood and poorly insulated walls. But now when we have better insulation, more insulation and OSD instead of plywoods, these buildings are completely destroyed. They're rotting. You have to reclad, resheathe, mitigate mold and replace sometimes replace some certain framing elements and people are losing that after five years after eight years 10 years and people are losing all of the equity in their house and um it's it's becoming a it's becoming a big issue and i i think that sort of my fear in this is that it's sort of similar to the energy efficiency stuff is that, um, people look at this and they say, well, there's the problem with using insulation, (laughs) that problem with using stucco or that's the problem with, with airtight homes wag their fingers at the whole back in the day, we used to be so much better. (laughs) But it's just Um, a
0: system problem overall because you're looking at one component versus another.
2: Exactly. And it's, um, and it's a, the issue isn't with stucco. The issue isn't with insulation. The issue is with water management. Right. And so we have to get better at water management when we make these other improvements. So just saying like, well, we have these problems and they're expensive. So therefore we shouldn't, we should have leaky buildings.
0: We should go backwards. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 And
2: that's, that's my, so that's, that's some of my fear with this is that when in response to really big failures and these are big failures, I think they just, there's a, Lawsuit. I'm not sure if it's been settled yet, but it's a like, hundred million dollar lawsuit against Toll Brothers in Pennsylvania right now. <sighs> There's a lot going on in Florida. Like these are, th- this is going to be, this Dang. is, this is just the tip of the iceberg for us here, unfortunately. And my, my fear is that we'll respond to it. the the wrong way instead of the right way when
0: you're saying there's an issue with stucco then are you saying that what you guys are going to more so in those areas that you're referring to not so much california because it's pretty stable climate but you've got like your uh you know sightings and those types of things because it more so sheets the water as opposed to absorbs it what what is the solution to that i mean in general so somebody can get a quick hit idea you know
2: so the the idea is basically what we do is we there's a few different ways that walls can manage water. And in the United States, the most common wall water management strategy is drainage. Mm-hmm. So the drainage and WRB or water resistant barrier approach.
0: So like a Tyvek. And, like the, pardon me? Like a Tyvek wrap. Like, is that what yeah, we're talking about? Tyvek building okay. paper. And
2: it, you can use anything you want. Um, you is a zip system. You can, a fluid applied. Um, but the concept is, I guess I'll do it and I'll contrast it with the other water management strategy, which is, storage, redistribution, and controlled release. And that's like, picture a castle or a mass wall. You've got stu- you've got a big mass there. And the way we manage water is, well, we just, we allow whatever it is to get wet <laughs> um, and slowly dry in both directions. Right. And it's not made out of anything moisture sensitive, so it can do that and there's no problem. Right. With framed walls, the best approach tends to be this, well, we have some sort of primary water control layer, um, and then we have uh, a cladding that sheds water but doesn't really block it okay. and in order for that water that primary water control layer to do its job properly we have to give it literally give it room to work
0: to breathe, so yeah. you okay.
2: want a space between the cladding and the water control layer um, we call that draining and back venting your cladding okay. and it's a great idea no matter where you are even in california but it's an extremely important in any climate that gets more than 20 inches of rain a year
1: we're finding mm, that that
2: sense. tends to be the dividing line where, okay, if you get more than 20 inches of rain a year, you really need to make sure that that space is open and clear and can can drain. In California, the two layers of building paper appears to be pretty sufficient for most um, types of buildings.
1: So I had a question. I'm glad you brought it back up. I've seen some builders try to get rid of that second layer. What does that do or... Well, hold on, do- is it the second layer or is it going to the
0: idea of the... like? Because my question's around the one-coat stucco where they're using the foam now no, no, no. and those types of so things. So I've okay. seen
1: builders say we don't need two layers of uh, uh, right. paper. The paper, yeah. Okay. Uh, what does that do or not do? Uh, what are your thoughts on that?
2: It depends on why they're doing that. If they're just saying we don't need two layers, they're that's contrary to the code. And what they're doing is assuming that that layer... that the layer that they've got the one that's still there will stick to the stucco they've got a real problem and most of the times it does now they argue correctly uh, correctly by code anyway the code does allow you to eliminate one of those layers if you're using a fluid applied membrane or an integral sheathing plus water and air control layer now this you I don't know if you see this very much in California, but there's um, a product called Zip. It's made by Huber, mm-hmm. but there are a few other similar products where the sheathing itself has a coating on it, mm. and it becomes the water control layer. And you you tape the seams of the sheathing. So your framer, who's installing the sheathing, ends up being responsible for the water <laughs> control for the whole building. Oh, wow! Just sort of interesting. Yeah. Anyway, in that case, the code only requires you to use one layer behind your behind your stucco that's what's required by code but i think that on on really anything like can you get away with only using two two layers sure and, and in california if you're doing a bungalow maybe with generous overhangs and it's dry you're san diego sure i've knocked yourself out but if you're doing uh anything more substantial a taller building that gets more abused by wind and rain and stuff you'll want a um you'll want a a bigger space and you can use a textured building wrap also harder to obtain in California because you guys are so used to using the type D coated felts. Yeah. Um, But they make those that are kind of crinkled. Yeah. And um, that, that provides a little bit of a space for drainage. If you're using a panel product like that um, Jason talks about, you can do that as well, but you still need drainage behind that panel. And, um, and this is true for any cladding, right? A panel panelized fiber cement cladding. Yeah. You, you want to install that over furring or, or some sort of offset to allow drainage and drying behind it to, yeah. to keep it as... And actually that, of all of the things I teach about, the single easiest way to make your building more forgiving of uh, construction defects or, or bad details is to provide a generous space behind your cladding for drainage and drying.
0: Just air, air gaps, you don't, basically.
2: If you don't, um, you're just less likely to ever have a problem if you have drainage and drawing. Um, you raise the stakes a lot when you when you increase exposure. And that's what you're doing when you, when you don't let stuff drain away. It means that your tools for, I guess, um, to have a leak, you have to have, it helps to think of it in, in this way. To have a leak, you have to have a source of water. Right. You have to have a pathway for the water to get from where it is to where you don't want it to be. And you have to have some sort of driving force to push it along that pathway. And then you have to have something that gets damaged. Now, when we when we detail buildings, we tend to focus on the pathways, right? Let's seal up all the pathways, yeah. make sure yeah. that we don't have yeah. any pathways. Um, but we forget that you can address any one of those four things to reduce your risk. And it's often a lot more effective to reduce the driving force, which is um, and in, in this case, it's, um, hydrostatic pressure and wind driven rain, yeah. uh, capillary. If you, if you provide this space, there's no force that directs water into those pathways. Gravity takes over, takes it down the building and, and you're fine. So address the, that's often a lot more practical than trying to seal all of the penetrations because. There are tons of penetrations that we can't seal. It's
0: interesting, even that you talk about like hydrostatic pressure, because even on the interior of homes, right? When you're putting, you're comprising showers and those types of things, you're trying to explain to people, you know what I mean, how hydrostatic pressure works. Because essentially, they put in some type of membrane or whatever to the studs, and they slam all that mud right against it. Mm -hmm. And it's like, look, you're creating a fermenting area that's never (laughs) gonna dry. A because the mud's sucking it all up, and B there's no there's no uh there's nowhere for the moisture to go. Except for in some tar laden mud, you know, mud packed pan. Which and is this get, is
2: how you will get your way with clients. You use the word fermenting. Oh,
0: I do it all the time. I do. <laughs> I,
2: wants that. They'll I do like, it all the time. All I'm time. like, it's just. I'm like,
0: time. I'm like, all your, all the stuff you're washing out, and everything else is just fermenting in here, and they just kind of freak out. I'm like, exactly. Like you there got you go. it. There you yeah, go. that's you interesting. Fear. Because it's on the inside. It's on the inside as well. Like you know, we talk about the issues that you have on the outside, but how many leaks do you get on the inside of a house from an old shower pan and those types of things? Yeah. Because the stuff's exactly. just been sitting in there and never dries. That's so never dries.
1: Yeah. So gross. It's the truth. Oh,
0: though. She's all excited about a horrible work. It's the truth. You
2: know I mean? <laughs> Somebody, uh, there's a, an architect. I think he's in California. Uh, Studio Goldfinch. On uh, he posted something on Instagram. Of, he showed a clear car, and um, which is cool, right? Because you can see the you can see the how the car work is clear. Anyway, and he was saying, well, what if we did the same thing with buildings? And nope. um, know, <laughs> it would be cool, but it would be so gross. So I mean, scary. You spend any amount of time actually. On construction sites, and you realize e- even stuff that ends up looking beautiful. Like, gosh, yeah. I, I remember when I started. I asked my first boss. I was like, "Is it always so gross?" <laughs> he was like, yeah, was like, "Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, it really oh is. They're God. always it's like this."
0: It's bad, man. It's bad.
1: We'll have to have you back, Christine, to to talk uh, forensics and get deep into that world. But we're up against it for today. But it was so much fun having you on. Really appreciate you joining us. Super interesting. Like super interesting.
2: Well, I love, I just love y'all's podcast. It's so interesting for me to learn about our industry is so broad and it's so neat to learn about different, um, different areas of specialty. It's, uh, it's just so cool. I was telling you, Dimitri, that I loved your, um, your interview with your former boss. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, David, David Olson. Olson. Fantastic. Great stories. And, um, Anyway, it's just neat stuff that you don't that I don't think about too because I'm ideal. I stop once you get to the anything that's not wet. I'll, <laughs> I'll deal sometimes with wet, wet rooms, but I stop. And there's so much more cool yeah. stuff going on, and I just love listening. So keep it up, guys.
1: Thank Very you. Nice. Thank you. So thank you for joining us, Christine. Make sure to follow her uh, Building Science Bike Club uh, on Instagram. Are you allowed to talk about Fight Club? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I'm sure she's heard that before, (laughs) once or twice. That's all for this episode, but keep listening for a sneak peek of our next episode. This show is part of the Gable Media Network. You can check out similar content at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com you can help support what we're doing here by leaving a five-star rating and a review on your preferred podcasting app it helps others find us and your support is the only way that this show grows and don't forget to connect with us through our facebook community instagram and see the random thoughts and articles that we share on twitter and linkedin but before you go next time on spaces Podcasts, the complexity is not actually building anymore the complexity is trying to get it through building departments.
4: There's a miscellaneous steel model. And um, because one of the king studs wasn't labeled correctly, it got missed in the clash detection process. Uh-huh. So they have these, I mean, huge pipes in this wall. And now we're having to re-engineer parts of the wall so that these massive pipes can get
0: through.
2: In terms of design and what we do in the field, especially on the plumbing side,
0: there's a huge push towards a heavy amount of efficiency, specifically related to water reusage. Most of our designs now, especially in commercial buildings, and a lot of times now multifamily buildings, we're seeing a much larger use of rainwater and graywater collection and recycling that water for either irrigation usage or if it's rainwater, possibly even back towards fixtures.
1: And thank you again for spending some time with us. Talk soon.